I trust you've all got your sermon notes. And we've got, got sermon notes. You don't have to follow them, as I say, but you might find either for future reference. Yeah, it might be helpful. Um, that was a prayer, wasn't it, we were just singing. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your glory fall in this room. And um, I'm just overawed by the fact that God has chosen to use his church to manifest his glory on earth at the moment. In this time until Jesus comes again. Um, Of course, God can do anything. Uh, He's at liberty to show his glory however he chooses. But he chooses to do it through his church. And this morning, I trust we're going to be thinking again about the privilege of being part of the church. And this is not a scripture that I plan to read, but it's, it's just um, kind of on the back of what we were singing. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So he can do anything. But he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We have the potential and the privilege to display the glory of God uh, in the church. And um, uh, if you've got your notes, you'll see that um, the church is in the heading of family. If you were here three weeks ago, Tom Shaw uh, mentioned the fact that there are different metaphors in the Bible uh, regarding the church. Some of you put your hands up and shouted out what those, those metaphors were. And I want to pick up on the one um, that he chose um, on that occasion, but deal with it in a different way. He said that the church is the family of God and every family has a flavour. And he brought out five flavours of the, the family of God. But I want to look at it slightly differently. Um, we've finished a series in Ruth. Julian uh, brought that to a close last week. We're telling us about Boaz and how he was a type of Christ, the Redeemer, and we gloried in in Jesus uh, last week. Um, Also, um, just thinking about future series, thank you those of you that have (coughs) filled in cards making suggestions about what we might deal with in our preaching. Um, As you can imagine, the suggestions are many and varied, all sorts of different things, Um, please keep doing that and we'll see if there's some consensus about that and we will try to incorporate those things. So I'm not sure if there's any cards still left, but if not, just scribble it on a piece of paper and put it in the box. But we we do want to serve you um, and we do want to be aware of those things that are are a concern or an interest or even trouble you. So that, that will be good. So we're going to look at this metaphor again and we need to just... I just put at the beginning here a a dictionary definition um, of a metaphor. The application of a name or descriptive term to an object or action to which it is imaginatively but not literally applicable. I might say I'm starving. I'm not actually starving. It's just a metaphor to say I'm getting a bit hungry. We might go into our house and say... This house is a tip. Now, it isn't like the council tip, 
but it's just us trying to say it's in a bit of a mess, isn't it? And, and I might say, this car's going like a bomb. <laughs> we, we use that term for all sorts of things. How's your church going? It's going like a bomb. <laughs> well, hopefully not. Hopefully not blowing up to destruction. But you know what I mean, that how a metaphor works. And there are different metaphors in the New Testament. And just, I want to, to try and demonstrate this morning that the family is slightly different from all the others. And I've said it's more than a metaphor. I really believe that. It's more than a metaphor. But in the New Testament, um, as you called out on that occasion, the church is described as a body, the body of Christ. And if you were here when we had the series in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12, 13 and 14 were all about the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and every one of you is a member of it. And we looked at how, just as a human body, the, the members in the church have different functions. They can't all have the same function, can't be all the same. Uh, none are insignificant, but we all work together, just like a human body, supplying one another's needs. It's a lovely uh, illustration. But, of course, we're not actually parts of a body, are we? But it, it's an illustration. It helps us. Another one is a temple, and that's used in two ways, individually and, and corporately. Um, we as believers are now temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells in people, not in special places, but in people who belong to Jesus. And that's in the context that we should be careful with our lives, how we live our lives, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But collectively, the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Together, we are a dwelling place for God. Um, but we're not actually a temple. Um, we're not kind of all those fancy things that make up a temple. Another thing is a building, and this is particularly in terms of the fact that we are referred to as living stones. Okay? Living stones being fit together into a building fit for God's dwelling. I'm always amazed when I look up particularly older buildings, ancient buildings, before they had any fancy machinery and diamond cutters and all the rest of it, how stones in a building were so wonderfully fit together. And that was all hand-tooled, and the precision is amazing. And this illustration is to say the fact that we're all different, we're bits of rock hewn out, but God is shaping us so that we fit together and that we work together. Now, we might say somebody's a brick, and what we mean is they're solid and dependable. Fred, you're a brick. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? But you're not really a brick. You're much softer than a brick. Okay. <laughs> um, next week and the week after, we're going to look at another metaphor, which is the bride. That's the final, I think, the final metaphor for the church in the New Testament. I won't steal that, the thunder of, uh, of those uh, preaching that. But let's look at this thing, a family. I want to say that it's more than a metaphor. We are actually a family. We are actually God's family. Not just like a family, we are God's family. And um, the concept of family is inherent in the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us. God is spirit. Right? God is far beyond our comprehension. Uh, God, 
um, is far outside our ability to determine who he is and what he is like. And so we can only go on the way that he has described himself to us. And God has revealed himself to us in what we call the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we see love expressed in the Trinity. We say God is love. Now you can't say somebody is love unless they have an object to love. And before we ever came into being, before the world was ever made, God loved in himself. And we have to say that God is complete and happy in himself, in that relationship that we've very, um, in a sense, very limited understanding of what God is through the the revelation of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But that, that is God's relationship. He is happy in himself. He needs nothing. He is able to be love in himself. And the fact is, God did not need a family, that's in addition to the Trinity, but he desired one. And amazingly, he wanted you and me to be part of it. If you think of the the amazing thing that God is, the the amazing relationship that God is, God wants us to be part of it. And um, I've come to realise that some of my notes are a little bit out of kilter, but if you you just go to the first scripture there from Ephesians 1.5, that relates to that. It says, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God has always wanted us to be part of his family. And it's his delight and his pleasure that we are so. Can you believe that? I don't always think, (laughs) how can God be pleased with us at times? But he is, it's his pleasure and will that we are part of his, his family. And it was God who sent his son to rescue us. And I've put, you say, well, that's obvious. We know it was Jesus was the son. But God sent a family member to rescue us. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send an SAS commando or a, a troop or whatever to rescue us. He sent his son. Part of the, the Godhead, the family of God, comes to rescue us. And this is how Jesus is first identified in his ministry. You know when he was baptised, the Spirit came and the, and, and the Father said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So Jesus is the model Son in God's family. He's the prototype. God says, this is what a Son will be like in my family. This is my family, my Son. And we become sons and daughters. And forgive me, ladies, if we keep referring to sons, because that's how the scripture does. But it it most definitely includes the ladies. It's it's just the term that the Bible uses. But we become sons and daughters by adoption through faith in this model son, this this one who comes as a family member to earth. And so we have these other scriptures there in John 1. This is the context that Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, but they didn't recognise him when when he came and they rejected him. But it says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So we are born into God's family. That's what happens, isn't it? You are born into um, a family and therefore we are legitimate sons and daughters. 
of the living God. That's something that God has done by his spirit. And then in Romans, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's objective, as we'll see in more than one occasion, is to conform us to the likeness of this prototype son in the family of God and to make us like him. So God makes that possible for us to be transformed. And he is the first one. He is the one who sets the pattern, who sets the standard, and we are being made like him. And we find that the other member um, of the family, the, the Trinity, incidentally, we know there's one branch of the church that was desperate to have a mother in the Trinity. Fortunately, they never managed to get it through. That was, they were angling for that. They would say, well, there's a father, there's a son, there must be a mother. Um, but we, haven't had, we don't have to have a mother. But we do have the Holy Spirit who comes as a comforter. And that's maybe what a mother does. She comforts and the Holy Spirit comes to us as a counsellor and a comforter. And the Holy Spirit confirms our sonship. Now, here's one of my mistakes. I've missed a bit off that verse. You should be, or two verses. We've got, it should be Galatians 4, 6 and 7. And it reads, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And then it goes on, So you are no longer a slave. We're no longer just here to serve God, to do his bidding, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. It tells us in Romans that we are, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, just the same as God's prototype son, as it were. So this is absolutely fantastic. God, by his spirit, another family member comes alongside us and tells us in our spirits that we're God's children. Well, Natural families are wonderful, but they are temporary. Have you noticed how um, politicians and others are getting concerned about the destruction of the family in our nation? That's partly in the context of marriage. They are concerned that uh, whereas marriage was uh, the thing that, that helped to constitute and support and protect a family, Now people are choosing other ways of having children and relating to one another. And there's a lot of concern. And apparently, well, I saw on the news yesterday that um, in Westminster Cathedral, which is the Catholic cathedral, they had a celebration of marriage. And people who'd been married many, many years were there. And um, and they were there celebrating and and restating their vows. You know, many of them had been married 50 or more years. And they're saying... We need marriage in our community. We need marriage in the world. We need that commitment one to another. But as I say, as wonderful as families are, particularly when they're supported by marriage, uh, but they're temporary. But God's family will last forever. So two scriptures here. God's family now, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We are a family, a family of believers. God says we should love him, first of all, then we should love our neighbour as ourselves, then we should love our enemies. But there is a special love, and we'll, we'll come on to that, that is 
in the family of God. He said we should do good to everyone, especially those who are in the family of God. But this family is also eternal. It's not just for now. For this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So there is an everlasting, eternal family, a forever family that we're part of. And, we're, and that family extends beyond this life. It's those who've gone before us, those believers in the Old Testament are part of God's family. And those Christians who have died before us are part of God's family. And we are together. It's an eternal, wonderful family. And uh, if you noticed, but I've actually misquoted that. Um, up here it says, you were formed for God's family. And I put in the notes, we were formed. But that's fair enough. It's good, isn't it? But that's Rick Warren. We were formed for God's family. What that means is when we were saved, when we were born again by the Spirit of God, when we became new creations, it was so that we could be part of another family. Right? Earthly families are great and we should be loyal to our earthly families. But God's family is even greater. Uh, and it's absolutely wonderful. We were formed, we were transformed, if you like, in order to be part of God's family. But God did not intend that any of his family members should be isolated or independent. Now we know that that's not possible for some Christians. Some Christians, um, beyond their own ability, are isolated. They may be in prison. Um, they may be the only believer uh, you know, in a, an alien country. But God's intention um, is not that we should in, be independent or isolated. Unfortunately, independence is a, is a kind of spirit of our age, isn't it? That everything is designed to help you to make it on your own. Um, you know, you can live in front of your computer and manage your life. I don't know how many, I know, you know, not many of the older folk may do that, but the younger folk, it's all electronics, let's manage it all from here. And um, you don't have to go to the shops anymore. You order it online and Tesco's and Sainsbury's will deliver it to your door. You don't have to interact with any people in the shops. Isn't that good? We don't have to you know, interact with the, you know, the, the cashier or the checkout lady or other people, jostle past other people in the shops. We just sit at home and do it. And that's a problem. And we can kind of see church that way sometimes. We can try and manage things in church without a relationship. Now, whilst our relationship to Christ is personal, God never intends it to be private. It isn't private because we are together. You know, there are those who, who, who kind of view church that way. I guess not so many people these days, but I've known people who would kind of slip in at the back, not necessarily here, I'm not talking about here, but slip in the back, take communion, slip out again. You know, they've done their duty, they've done what they should do. And the New Testament, there's no picture like that in the New Testament of the church. It's absolutely far from that. Now when I say that you know, God never intended it to be private, some people are extroverts and some people are introverts. Some people wear their heart on their sleeve and others keep things more close to themselves. That's fine. There's a place for everybody. But we are talking about community. That the church is a community where we interact and that we put aside independence. That's part of our rebellion against God is independence. 
independence which said, God, you keep out of my life. I'm in control of my life. I'm running my life. But when we become a Christian, we put independence aside. Independence from God, but God says also independence from other believers. You are interdependent. We need other believers. Some people make um, uh, the universal church an excuse for not having much to do with their local church. They say the the church is God's people right throughout the earth. And many of us have had the real privilege of travelling and meeting believers that we can't even speak their language, but we know that they're God's people and we embrace them. It's fantastic. Uh, But most of the references to church in the New Testament are about the local church where people are together uh, in community. Let's turn over if you're following your notes. So here's a bold statement. You can challenge it if you like. We cannot become the people God intended on our own. God never intended that we should be solitary Christians that just... Uh, with our relationship with him, we should accomplish all he wants in our lives. As important as that is, I don't want to in any way undermine our personal relationship with God and that we give time to develop that and so on. But God's purpose is that we should grow in maturity, becoming more and more like Christ. And this takes place best in the family environment God has provided. That's the best place for it. And um, we're not going to go greatly into the issues of maturity, but I think you'll find in the New Testament, maturity has most to do with how we relate to other Christians. You know, and I've got a question about that at the end. But if you think about that, you know, maturity isn't necessarily well. I know my Bible well. I pray regularly. You know, I know this. I know that and the other. Maturity is about character and how I relate to other Christians. We cannot come to maturity in isolation. And we need the support, encouragement, discipline, accountability and the testing that family fellowship provides. Let me just just mention those kind of briefly. About support, there's a, a scripture right at the end before the questions. It says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. A bit later in that scripture, it says each man must carry his own load. And you think, hey, that's not quite, those things don't fit together. But I think they do. What it means is that we have a responsibility to look after ourselves uh, and to live before God. All right? And we can't give that responsibility to other people. We, we must be responsible Christians and not offload things that are, are, are proper to ourselves and things that we take responsibility for. But there are things in life that overwhelm us. They are really burdens. And the aim is that in the family of God that we share those burdens and we help one another. So we support one another. And then there is encouragement that we need to encourage one another. And one of the ways is meeting together encourages one another. And the scripture even says so in Hebrews 10. You know, Don't give up meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more you see the day approaching. That is the day when Jesus will come again. We all do it, I'm sure. We think, I don't think I'll bother. I won't bother to go. I'm feeling a bit tired and I don't think I'll get involved. But you think, put the, put the the boot on the other foot. You think about 
if you're involved in, in some meeting where we're gathering together, isn't it an encouragement when others come? You know, especially if you happen to be leading it and they come and support and so on. And I think we just need to think, you know, when we're kind of expressing our own preference, how much would it encourage others if I just made the effort and, and, and got involved in this? Now, I'm not saying you have to be involved in everything that we do as a church, but just think about particularly those things that we think are very, you know, the key core activities of the church, worshipping together, praying together, being in cells together, serving together, those things. They are an encouragement, and we can be an encouragement to others. Discipline, that we need, we all need discipline. Any family without discipline gets into chaos, doesn't it? And, and without going into detail, but the, the, the Bible talks about um, structures, if you like, in the church of leadership and other things where uh, discipline can be appropriate. Now, we might shy away from discipline, but we all know, don't we, that if we're not disciplined, we can be unruly children. And that's the last thing that we want. And then there's accountability. This is a, uh, furthest from, uh, that you might get from this thing of being independent. You know, we could say, well, I'm come to church, but I don't need anybody. I don't need to hold myself accountable to anybody. But it works in different ways. And even as leaders, we are accountable to you. All right. And you can come and talk to us about anything. And you can say, I don't think what you're saying is right, John. From the scriptures, it isn't right. And before God, we are accountable to you. Right? There are no no-go areas. But there's another area that um, it seems to be more and more important these days. And that if we're struggling with sin, sometimes we need to hold ourselves accountable to others. And I've used the illustration before, but it's, it's so, so important. And that's the, um, the issue of pornography, where so many men are trapped in it. Often, the only way they can get clear of it is to hold themselves accountable to a brother that they trust and to say, will you ask me? You know, once or twice this week, what I've been doing. Will you? I'll hold myself accountable to you. That's a loving thing to be able to do with somebody, and it's so, so important. And the testing that comes, um, you know, uh, through family fellowship. Anything that's good needs to be tested, doesn't it? And we can make all sorts of uh, claims about ourselves, and we can think we're in a particular position, but it often needs to be tested. We need to be tested whether we are truly loving or otherwise. And so these things are so important uh, in the family of God. Um, I'm sure Joe would want me to say that we have just found it so fantastic, the support we've had uh, for the thing that we're going through with our son. The church has been absolutely fantastic, praying for us, not, not just the prayer meetings, but I know many of you pray at home for us. I don't know how we would have managed... I don't know how we would have managed without your support. But you know, that's one of the benefits. But I have a responsibility, as we all have, to, to give input to that for other people as well. But thank you so much for that. It's been absolutely tremendous. And uh, I'm sure that we can uh, you know, rely on you for that to continue. But um, there is an issue. I've put here, however, um, you know, we try to justify it. There can be some deception. So however, um, however uh, um, much we try to justify it, if we withdraw from or become careless about fellowship, 
It's usually a symptom of spiritual decline and we deceive ourselves. So when we're feeling a bit off colour and we want to withdraw or we're a bit casual about things, it is usually an indication of spiritual decline. It isn't necessarily always the case. People may may not come because they're ill or they may have family responsibilities that they may feel they have to withdraw for a moment and it's quite legitimate. In most cases, that's done in fellowship. We share the needs and we say, fine, please, don't, you don't feel obliged to come. You need to be looking after your family. You need to be doing this, that and the other. But people do get deceived and you may have heard people who have drifted off and you meet with them and um, you say, look, we're so sorry that you're not with us now. Oh, there's no problem. Um, in actual fact, I'm praying more and I'm reading my Bible more. And I'm thinking, well, my, you know, the Bible actually says don't neglect to meet together. And there's so much there which is all about community and how we should be together. And if we've got difficulties, we work those out together. We don't go and isolate ourselves and then try and justify it. But that's a generalisation. There will be exceptions, of course. But the church is God's primary means uh, of our sanctification. That is, the process of making us more like Jesus. We have to ask the question, do you want to be, in this life, more like Jesus? You don't have to put your hand up or say yes or otherwise, but just think about it. Do you actually want to be more like Jesus? Um, when we go to be with him, the scripture says we will see him as he, he is and we will be like him. Everything will be changed. But do you want to be like Jesus now? Well, if you do, you need the church, the church to help you in that process. So the church is where we belong. This sense of belonging is so important. Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. No matter what your experience, whether you've been a refugee, whether you've had a good family, whether you've had a difficult family, whether you felt there was nowhere where you belonged, you belong now. You belong in God's household because Jesus has purchased you with his own blood. He has made you a son or a daughter of God, and you belong. And um, I'm sure many of you have done Bible studies on this word together. It appears so many times in the New Testament. And sometimes it just means that they gathered, the Christians gathered together. But there's some more specifics, and there's some put down here. Um, Examples are joined together, built together, heirs together, fitted together, held together, and then finally we will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. It's all about being together. And uh, you know, if we were to read in, um, in the Acts of the Apostles about those early believers, that they had everything in common. They met together, they prayed together, they they studied the apostles' teaching together. Everything was together. An amazing community of people, many of whom had probably didn't know one another before that day of Pentecost. So committed to a church family identifies us as a genuine believer or as genuine 
believers. So if we are a disciple of Jesus, what is going to identify us? Um, Being a disciple was not uncommon in the time of Jesus. You would have rabbis and they would have people who travelled with them who were their disciples. And in many cases, they would take on the characteristics of those men. If you're with somebody for any length of time, you start using their phrases, all right? And I, you know, and I think sometimes we, if you find somebody's been travelling with Terry Virgo or something or other, and you listen to them preach, and you find Terry Virgo's phrases in there. That's just an example, but that's not uncommon because the the um, rabbi would share his life with his disciples, uh, and they would follow his ways, and they might even follow some of his habits. Um, in the way that he did things and and so on. But what is it that's going to identify us as disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us this is. He tells us what it is. He says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's That's the test, how we love other Christians. So if we're not thoroughly involved in church life, as circumstances allow, I accept that, if we're not thoroughly involved and committed to the family of believers, then we are limiting our witness to the world. Barbara read from John 17 this morning, which is something similar there, about the fact that all men will know uh, that you're my disciples um, because of your unity. That was a, the subject there was unity. But that the world may know that God has sent Jesus into the world by our unity. So how do you know someone's a genuine believer? Well, yes, they may well give their personal testimony and I think that's absolutely valid, obviously. But the, the, the measure that Jesus used is how much do you love other Christians? Are you going to demonstrate something in community that, that convinces the world that you're my disciples. All right? It's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I think we can maybe look back over church life and church history and think how we failed in that, really. You know, if people, you say to people, what about that church? Well, they've, they've had a split. You know, they've had this or they've had that or other. You know, and uh, we've got to work hard at that. But that's what Jesus said. And so, you know, part of our, our testimony is how we behave in the church of God. What's the key then? The key is sacrificial love. And it's what Jesus demonstrated. Notice he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love? He loved um, sacrificially, didn't he? He loved sacrificially. And um, you know, the kind of, this kind of love cannot be learned in isolation. We have to be around irritating, imperfect, frustrating people. Now, that doesn't apply to you guys. I'd just like you to know that. All right? But didn't Jesus have some frustrating people to work with? All right? didn't, didn't he have some people that he had to, you know... Amazing, he kind of discipled them in a group, didn't he? They all knew what Jesus was saying about the other one. It was like corporate discipleship, but... But, you know, one betrayed him, the other denied him, uh, they got it wrong so many times, but it says he loved them to the end. He loved his own to the end. 
absolutely amazing. So Jesus is the example. And, it, and John tells us in his first letter, this is how we know what love is. The world has all sorts of views as to what love is. Love is, you know, just feeling good. It's, it, or it's sexual attraction, or it's all sorts of other things. Love is, you know, me wanting something more than something else. But this is what we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In some cases, that might mean actually giving up your life. Um, being prepared to, to actually die. That's very unusual, but what we have to die to is our desires, our preferences. It may be expressed in terms of time, money, emotion, even sleep. We may be, we have to deny ourselves sleep for the sake of others. It could be all sorts of things in life. And some of these other scriptures give us a little idea as to how it is that we can live and love sacrificially be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love that's those irritating imperfect frustrating people be patient bearing with one another in love if the early church was perfect as we sometimes think it must have been so soon uh, after Jesus had gone back to heaven and having all the, the apostles around them, it must have been a perfect church. But when we read of all the instructions, we see it was far from perfect. It was just like us. They needed those instructions. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Of course we need to look to our own interests, the things that we need in church life, the way that we can be best fed in church life, and the way that um, you know, God will prosper us. But we're not only to look at our own interests, we're look to look at the interests of others. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. This word patience keeps dropping up, doesn't it? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. If you like, that's that's the theory about what we should do, should be doing, right? and I don't I don't really want to make this a heavy thing because in in so many ways this church demonstrates those things. And I said personally, we have just known such love from you guys that we're overwhelmed by it, and it's absolutely fantastic. But we always have to challenge ourselves over these issues. It's so important that we do that. And I put some questions here. I know that certainly our group is not, uh, we're having a social this week, so we won't be looking at these. But even if you don't deal with these um, uh, in a group, just have a look at these questions and ask yourself um, whether, um, you know, God would, you know, you need to just to call on God to help you um, to live as he wants you to live in his family. We have huge privileges 
and blessings in being in the family of God. Don't we? I trust that you know that. That we're, It's wonderful blessings. But we also have responsibilities. With privilege always comes responsibility. But let's start with the privileges. How would you describe the privileges and benefits of being in God's family? Write some of those down. How you've been blessed. You know, what are the privileges that you know from God and from one another? How would you describe a mature Christian in terms of family relationships? That's church family relationships. I've given you a clue about that, that maturity is about how we relate to others. So challenge yourself about it. Number three, what do you find most challenging in terms of the quality of relationships God looks for? And those scriptures will give you a, a clue. You know, I guess, you know, if you're naturally an impatient person, patience may be the issue. Right? There may be other things that you find really, really challenging. Um, there are some people that naturally are happy to go up and talk to others and so on, others who are more withdrawn. And that's such a, a big challenge to go and actually get involved and talk to other people. Now, we're, just as an example, we're a church that is quite small. Um, there's no reason why we should all not know one another at a reasonable level, right? In, at some level, having talked to one another, uh, having shared, asked how you are, um, you know, inquired about their life. Now, some people, they will find that difficult. They think, I, I just can't go up to somebody else and, and just ask questions like that. Well, that, if that's the challenge, ask God to help you. Ask God to help you. What would loving sacrificially mean to you? You know, something you think, yes, I, I believe that's what God wants me to do, but it's so hard, it will be a sacrifice. Just ask God what that might be. What is it? Maybe that's holding you back. And the last one, do you see the church as a place where you mainly look to have your needs met or where you can serve others in love? Would you see yourself as a giver or maybe mainly as a receiver? Now, I do appreciate there are times in our Christian life where we just have to be receivers. Right? We're going through difficult times and traumas and all sorts of things. But what is your desire? Is your desire to serve others, to bless others? Or you know, as you walk through the, this, the doors, do you think, well, how am I going to be blessed today? You know, what am I going to get from God? Are people going to relate to me well? Or am I going to be blessed? Or do you think, how can I bless some people today? How can I be a giver and not just a receiver? Because we can all be givers you know, in the, in the New Testament where Paul is talking about um, giving financially, he talked about a church um, in Macedonia that gave out of their poverty. I mean, I'm now talking about finance, of course, but they gave out of their poverty. So you may think, I haven't got much to give, but we can all give. And we don't need to think of ourselves as a victim. We can think of ourselves as now we've got the capacity and the resources God gives us we can be givers. So I'm not thinking about anybody in particular here at all. This is a, you know, you're brilliant, you know, all of you. Absolutely fantastic. But we do need to look into our hearts and allow God to search our hearts and to see that being having this privilege of being in this wonderful family that we need to work it out here. And if we, the thing is that I'm trying to make, if we 
um, do not get involved in things and we withdraw, we miss what God wants to do in transforming us. Some of those things might be difficult, but it's often the difficult things that work well in terms of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. So, the church, a metaphor, uh, uh, family being the, the metaphor for the church, I think it's more than a metaphor. I hope you've seen that it is actually a family. We are part of God's family, which gives us wonderful privileges, but also responsibilities. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We'll thank you that he came to be like us, that we could be like him and be part of the same family, with the same father, with the same inheritance, but with the same eternal blessings. Father God, we thank you so much for what we've already experienced of what it is to be in your family. Lord, thank you for those that have blessed us and loved us and served us, uh, Lord, and given themselves sacrificially for us. Father God, I ask you that you, by your spirit, Lord, will help us uh, to play our part, uh, Lord, to find the energy of the Holy Spirit to cause us to face up to challenges and, Lord, to know what it is to love sacrificially. Father, will you help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.